Welcome to the Pre-Health Pod. My name is Lexi. And I'm Sarah. And we are here to answer all of your pre-health questions. Wherever you are in your pre-health journey, whether you're planning to go to PA school or medical school or enter any other healthcare-related career, we are here to meet you at your level and answer any questions that you might have. Basically, all the questions that we wish we could have gotten answers to when we were working (laughs) through our undergrad. Uh, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) And we just finished wrapping up our episode with Dr. Nina Shapiro, which you'll get to hear after we chat at you for a while. But we were talking about medical myths and how to navigate that as you're entering the professional field. And even before that, when you're just shadowing, scribing, however you're getting your clinical experience, how you navigate that is really important. So I'm excited for that. But first, I kind of want to catch up with you. So Lexi, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. I am still waiting for secondary essays. So there's that. The waiting game between submitting your medical school application and secondary essays is weirdly long. I know some articles say it's like, because it takes a while for the medical school application server AMCAS that I applied to for MT schools to like verify my application. And it can take anywhere from one week to eight weeks, according to all of the forums I read. So I'm just kind of like, Eating around. Yeah. This is torture. I don't know. I submitted my application on the day it opens. So I hope it's like earlier than that. Yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. That's crazy. I kind of feel you though, because I'm waiting for PA school interview invitations. Painful. Oh my gosh. I just remembered something. I took the Casper today. You did? Yeah. I do. Yeah. So not for all PA schools, only some of the PA schools require it, but a couple of the ones that I'm applying to ask for it. So I took it today and I think it went really well. It seemed pretty straightforward. I mean, I kind of feel like, I don't know. I think it's kind of crazy that people like study for it. Yeah. It really is just a gauge of you as a person. I listened to this other podcast about like pre-meds and they say that you should not study for the Casper test at all. Well, first of all, I don't even know how, I guess you could practice potential scenarios, but they just say to do the practice exam on their site and the practice exam doesn't even give you answers. But again, I guess there's no right or wrong answer. It's more just like how aligned you are with physicians or something similar. Yeah. And I actually just got my score sent to the schools but we don't get a score back. It's just a no, I don't get to know how great or terrible I am. I don't like that part. I would like someone to tell me how I (laughs) No, you get like a quartile apparently, like what range of students you're in, I guess. I don't really know how much better you are. (laughs) This is Mm. some of the uncertainty pre-meds like us in pre-PAs still go through. (laughs) I guess we'll tell you when we figure it out. Yeah. Have you taken Casper, Lexi? Did you already take it? I did. I took it as of this recording. May 23rd was one of the test dates. Okay. And then I applied for medical school when it opened May 30th. And they sent my scores like literally a few days ago, but my application hasn't been verified yet. So the scores that they sent it to, the schools haven't even received my application yet. Yeah. So I guess it's all just on hold. It's just floating (laughs) in their universe of weight. Yeah. 
I think there's actually one school that I decided not to apply to, but I didn't remove that from my Casper. And so they're just going to have a score and no application. Just like, who is this person? (laughs) Maybe they won't even see it. Maybe it just filters out. Yeah, I'm not sure. I also took EMC preview. Do you know what that is, Sarah? Not a clue. Oh my gosh. So it's like another situational judgment exam. Casper is an SGT or whatever. And EMC, I guess, came out with it a year ago where they tested it with some schools. It's very similar, but instead of open-ended and video-based, it's all word-based scenarios and all multiple choice. So there were four... Wait, what? <laughs> oh, there yeah. Four? What did you say? You guys listening can't see, but I just like shot up and pointed at her because <laughs> sorry, I recently moved to Florida. And so I've been applying to jobs. And one of the websites that everyone uses is Indeed, right? Yeah. And they have you take these like exams if the job is interested in you. And one of the exams was literally Casper, but instead of having it be free response, it was multiple choice. And I was like, holy crap, why isn't Casper like this? This is so easy and it's so straightforward and it's so simplified. Because not to say that Casper was hard, but I did get frustrated with the time limits, especially when I had to do the typing section, only because my laptop keyboard one of the keys sticks and so it'll give like a double R (laughs) and so then you have to go back and fix it. Oh my God. That was what I was frustrated with. And I wished it had been multiple choice for that part. I thought that the video responses were actually way easier than the written responses because I could just talk. The thing is I talk too much. And so I was having trouble (gasps) getting my point across. (laughs) You talking too much. Oh my God, Sarah. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You're perfect. Uh, <laughs> what? No. Yes. Please. Double EMC preview was so interesting because, yeah, I preferred, honestly, the open-ended video or word-based. I didn't have the problem with the keyboard, but being a scribe really helped with the typing. I was just like, boo, boo, boo. Yeah. My typing is hour. Perfect. My keyboard, <laughs> that was my... Achilles heel was my keyboard. (laughs) I answered all the questions completely. I was just getting really frustrated having to backspace, backspace, backspace. Oh my gosh. Well, mine was like, there were four answer choices. One was, Ooh, well now I totally blocked it on my memory, but it was like something along the lines of very likely, likely, unlikely, and very unlikely. I don't think those are the right words. Um, like but that. it was just really hard to differentiate between the varies and the non-varies. Because <laughs> when I took the practice exam, I was like, well, I guess I should give myself half a point because I put very instead of not very. See, this sounds really complicated. But <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen listening to the podcast, I think she's overthinking it. <laughs> oh, my God. That's my life. <laughs> I think you can take that part with a grain of salt. Yeah, seriously. But besides Casper and WNC Preview and every other exam you have to take to get into a career in medicine, um, what else is going on? I know you just moved recently. Yes. Florida. Yeah, I was born and raised in Arizona for 
anyone that's wondering. And then I decided to move to Florida, mostly because I love Florida, uh, much to <laughs> Lexi's dismay. And secondly, because my parents just relocated to Florida and I've lived away from them for the last four years. Oh and I really God. wanted to live near them again. So I made it happen. Aww. And it's really fun. I love it out here, much to Lexi's horror. So for those of you who don't know, I was born and raised in Florida. And then I was like, after high school, I need to get out of here. I actually graduated high school a year early. So I was like, done. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to find like really the cheapest, but also kind of nice out of state university. And Arizona State was like, we're here. We accept everyone. So I was like, heck yeah. And then I went out there and haven't really been back since, except for the occasional Christmas. But I can't believe you moved to Florida after knowing me for so many years. And I was like, everything that's going on there, I don't want to move back. (laughs) I don't know. I really like it here. But yeah, Lexi and I met during our undergrad when we were both at ASU. So I really did just say, you can have Arizona now and I'm taking Florida. I don't think you're angry at that trade though. You don't have to deal with Florida anymore. Now it's my state. (laughs) That's true. My whole family still lives there though. So I still have to go back. (laughs) But then you'll see me. No, but I love Florida. I cannot believe. I feel like I'm in a different country almost. The people here are so different from the people in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Arizona people love them, grew up with them. We're very reserved. We don't really talk to each other. We kind of keep our distance. I don't know. We're all a little antisocial, I think. Yeah. Well, you're all so far apart. You have to drive 20 miles to get anywhere. Yeah. Everything is really spread out in Arizona. And in Florida, we're like all living on top of each other. And everyone's so friendly. And they all just want to chat with you everywhere you go. Okay. This might be a little too niche of a comment, but when people approach me and they want to talk to me in a grocery store, the first thing I think is this person's trying to kill me. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) This person's trying to like learn stuff about me so that they can come murder me. And (laughs) that has been an adjustment because that is not why they're talking to me in Florida. Apparently we chat here. We're chatty people. And I'm kind of starting to like it. Like, it's cute. It's fun. I have like a gym friend now. She's like in her 70s. Her name is Alice. She can lift more than me. She's awesome. So chatty. She just wants to chat all day long. It's awesome. I don't know. I'm really enjoying it here. Yeah. Well, that's great. I will say one thing I do miss about Florida, everything is kind of close together. I lived in like a walkable community type thing. And I would go on walks a lot, but the walks we would go on were kind of treacherous. You know, you go on a path and to the left of you were like a pile of 10 gators and you'd have to pick up your, I had little Maltese and I had a neighbor whose little Maltese, they went on a walk and the gator was like chomp, chomp and ate her little Maltese while they were on the walk and then just went back into the lake. And she was like, well, that's a bummer. Poor old dog is eaten again. (laughs) I have a conspiracy (laughs) theory. People are going to think I'm crazy. I probably shouldn't share this. I don't think (laughs) alligators are real. What do you mean? You haven't seen one? For weeks and I haven't seen a single alligator. I live next to a giant lake. Where are they? 
Are you serious? They swam in my swimming pool. They're like an infestation in Orlando. I <laughs> have not seen a single gator and I don't think they're real. I think they're fake. I think it's a lie. No, but like, I feel like I would have seen an alligator by now. I live next to a lake. It's huge. There's miniature lakes attached to it. And I am on that trail every morning with my dog. And we're just doing our little jogs every morning. No gators. No gators to be found. There's signs everywhere. No gators. So that's hilarious because when I moved to ASU, my first experience like my first week of college, this kid came up to me and was like, you're from Florida, right? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, are alligators real? He asked me that for real. And I was like, yeah, they are, man. They eat my dogs and no, you know, they chase after me. I think you guys are just (laughs) complaining about them for attention. What? I don't think they're real. You think I like the gators? I think it's a ploy for attention. All right, whatever. Oh my gosh, I'm starting to sound <laughs> crazy. I hope people realize that I'm joking. Uh, I wasn't sure. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is like Alex thinking I'm crazy for believing in ghosts. I'm joking. <laughs> Mostly. I still haven't seen a gator though. For that reason, I'm a little confused, but I understand it's an animal. It exists, whatever. Oh my God. Well, on well, that note. Yeah. And so the PA application timeline, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because I know you're getting interviews. When did you apply? Because I think it's quite different from medical school. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So basically, I applied for several schools and they all have different start dates, different deadline dates. Everything's completely different for each school. They even have different prerequisites. So Kind of the way that you go about the timeline is the application opens in late April. This year, I think it was April 27th, but I know that date changes based on the year. Yeah. So that that date varies. Don't swear by April 27th, please. And then once the application opens, you can either submit your application or start working on it, depending on whether or not you opened it before the application cycle opened. So what I would recommend is the year before you're planning on applying to PA school, open up the application, create an account, start working on it, entering in your experiences. Don't enter in your transcripts yet, but you can enter in your experiences and then the application will close. You won't be able to touch it and then it will reopen. And then you will just click confirm a couple of times. It'll transfer over those experiences you already entered in there, and then you'll be able to add programs. So once you add programs, then you can kind of decide when you're going to send programs your applications. So I haven't sent all of my applications to all of the PA schools yet. There's one more school that I'm waiting on because they want one of my prereq classes to be completely finished before I send them my app. And I don't finish that prereq class until literally next week. So I will submit that one next week. All of the other schools I've already clicked submit for and sent them my applications. So it's kind of weird. It's a unique situation, but it's kind of nice because it's also more flexible. But I don't know. Sometimes I think that's a bad thing, though, because it hasn't felt like I've ever stopped working on it. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite different because we do have quite a waiting period before I can even receive secondary essays. So for the medical school. That's the other thing. I already submitted my secondaries. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
Did you have to do one for every school you applied to? No, not all of them required it. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I would say it was like 70% required it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My process was definitely going to take a long, more long time. My application opened May 2nd of this year, which is 2023. And basically you have about a month to fill out the entire thing, just some basic demographics. They did, I think, add something called impactful experiences. So if you went through any challenges growing up or anything significant that impacted you personally or your education, they had a separate section for that instead of having to add that into the personal statement. Yeah. And we had, you know, the 15 activity section. Did you have that, Sarah? Something similar? I mean, it was endless. You could add as many as you want. There wasn't. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And they just call it experiences. Okay. Yeah. They called it work slash activities. And you'll have to look this on the AMCAS website, but there's a bunch of different categories you assign for each activity. And you have those too. Yeah. A number of hours listed and a contact information an email and a phone number were required for most of the activities. A contact info wasn't required though for my hobbies. My hobby was baking, <laughs> which I do like all the time. I made blueberry muffins today, but yeah. You know, so, PA school doesn't want to hear about your hobbies. <laughs> really? Yeah. So they don't include it on the application at, at all. Like it's not suggested to enter in your hobby anywhere. And oh. then um, Savannah from the PA platform she works really closely with CASPA, like everyone, PA school world. She yeah. actually came out the other day and said like, hey, don't put your hobbies on CASPA. Oh, wow. They're not asking for it. Don't add that in. So See, I sent, I wasn't initially going to put baking as my hobby, even though like I bake a lot. <laughs> Every like research presentation or lab meeting I had, it was like, I'm going to make some brownies. <laughs> but she anyway. great cookies. Oh, thank you. I didn't put it in, but I was just mentioning it to this med student who was looking over my essays and he was like, why aren't you putting this in? Because apparently it's probably like one of the most differentiating things from your application. A lot of people have scribing and research experience and, you know, whatnot. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But in addition to the work activity section is the giant personal statement, which I've been working on for several months before I even started my application, Yeah, which I highly recommend you all do too. Just sit down and start thinking a little bit about why you want to be a doctor or why you want to be a PA. Yeah. I think I wrote four or five personal statements over the course of a year. Oh yeah. I just kept... I don't know. I think I may have went about it wrong though, because anytime I wanted to change something, I would just scrap the whole thing and I would just start over. But no, it ended I up being a great personal statement. So I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely a process. Like my first one I wrote, I rewrote the entire thing. And I think that's normal. A lot of my mentors told me it's normal. You just write one and it's not great. It's maybe pretty crappy. And then you rewrite it with a little bit more. And then, yeah, I went through a few rounds. I basically asked my friend who is like really good at writing, took a bunch of English classes. I was like, I will bake you whatever you want. What is your most favorite dessert? If you could edit my personal statement for grammar and like tell me if anything stood out to you as, you know, needs to be fixed. And he was like, 100%. I love brownies. (laughs) How convenient. I know. (laughs) 
That's um, so awesome. that's what I did. I told him about my secondaries coming up and I was like, all right. So in one week or eight weeks, I might receive secondaries. I'm not really sure. I think once like they, my application was submitted May 30th and it's waiting a while to verify. And then the schools receive it. I think within a few weeks, they send me their secondary essays. I know a lot of them were highly recommended to submit within the first two weeks. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, my English friend, can you just read this for grammar? (laughs) I'll give you a baked good for every secondary essay you read over for me. (laughs) What a good gig for him. I know. (laughs) He's so nice. But yeah, and then after submitting secondaries, a few months go by and then you should start receiving, or I should hopefully start receiving invites to interview. Some medical schools are in person on my list and some are not. And so that'll be quite interesting for the fall. And I could know about acceptances into medical school as early as July or as late as one week before I start medical school, either in July or August. Oh, wait, no, the earliest I could know is January, excuse me. And then I was or the latest. Say, I was like July. July. Holy cow. <laughs> no, no, no. That's January <laughs> or July through August, one week before I start medical school. I know I had a friend who did that and I was like, oh my gosh, hopefully that's not me, but whatever. I'll t- I'll, I'll go anywhere. <laughs> it's going to be great. I'm excited for you. Oh, thank you. Well, with that said, I would love for us to jump in to our topic for the day with Dr. Nina Shapiro. So we'll go ahead and transition there. Thank you so much, Dr. Shapiro, for joining us for our next topic on tackling misinformation in medicine. Something very important for any future doctor, PA, or anybody pursuing healthcare to really understand and comprehend. So brief introduction of Dr. Shapiro. For over two decades, Dr. Nina Shapiro built a pediatric ear, nose, and throat program at UCLA and is now a pediatric ear, nose, and throat specialist at Westside Head and Neck in Santa Monica and Culver City, California. She completed her undergrad at Cornell University, graduated from Harvard Medical School, completed her otolaryngology residency at Harvard, and finished additional subspecialty training in pediatric otolaryngology at the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children in London and Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. Dr. Shapira appeared frequently in many broadcast programs like NPR and CNN as the go-to physician for controversial health studies and medical news. She even spoke at her first ever National Pre-Health Conference back in 2020, which you can find at MPHC's YouTube channel. Dr. Shapiro is an author of her myth-busting and evidence-driven book, Hype, A Doctor's Guide to Medical Myths, Exaggerated Claims, and Bad Advice, How to Tell What's Real and What's Not, as well as her children's book, The Ultimate Kid's Guide to Being Super Healthy. Today, we are so excited to talk about tackling misinformation in medicine, which is important to understand for any pre-health student pursuing a career in healthcare. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to see you again. I know. It's I'm been- so excited. It's been oh, forever. It has. <laughs> it has. We've all, you know, had major life changes moving on with careers and studies. And it's so exciting to see you guys. I love what you're doing. And I love how your initial small idea has grown into this incredible program on so many fronts. So big kudos to all of you. Thank you. That's so kind. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah. And Dr. Shapiro, I have to tell you the funniest thing happened to me today. I was talking to my dad on the phone about how we were recording with you tonight. 
he's a lawyer. He's not involved in the medical field at all. And he goes, Dr. Shapiro. It's like, yeah. And he's like, Dr. Shapiro, I read her book. She was on NPR. And I was like, yeah, that's the one. Oh my gosh. He kind of like fangirled a little bit about your book. It was adorable. Wow, that's adorable. Send him my best. Yeah, you're reaching unique audiences with this book. Yeah, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. But I just kind of want to go back on your story a little bit because I love your bio. You're amazing, phenomenal. You've done so many incredible things. But just to like take you back a little bit, how did you decide that you wanted to go to medical school and become a doctor in the first place? So that's wow, that is taking me way back. A lot of people, I think, think about it at the end of high school, what they want to be or what they want to do. I wasn't really sure at that point. I do have medicine in my family. My father is a physician and my older brother is a physician. So at that point, my older brother had already started applying to medical school or was in medical school at the time when I was finishing high school, actually. And then in college, I really took a whole bunch of different courses, not necessarily traditional pre-med. And I thought about writing, interestingly. I thought about being a journalist, interestingly. So I've kind of woven that in over the years uh, more recently. It didn't really come upon me, oh, one day I woke up and I said, this is what I want to do. I want to be a doctor. I think just I had some exposure during college. Back then, it was much easier to you know, sort of shadow a doctor in an emergency room and get some experience and see a lot. There weren't as many restrictions as there are now for various reasons. So, you know, during college, I did take some courses, obviously pre-med courses, but unfortunately that doesn't really give you a sense of what it's like to be a doctor. It gives you a sense of what it's like to work really hard and be around a lot of other people who are also working really hard, wanting the same thing in life and, and, you know, very similar goals. So unfortunately that's the way it is in pre-med life. There's very little direct exposure to anything medical. And frankly, that's very similar first year of medical school. You don't really have that sense that you're doing anything related to being a doctor. You're just learning about the human body and not really having a whole lot of connection to patients or patient care or clinical work. So it really takes a while, even after you've made that decision to get even close to doing something that's even remotely relevant to actually being a doctor. Yeah. No, thanks so much for sharing that. I feel like None of my classes in college really were about medicine or about becoming a doctor or physician, someone who cares for people or patients. Where I really gained that experience was scribing. And even scribing was really hard to do in college, balancing that with classes, you know, because it's eight to 12 hour shifts and you got to do at least multiple. And at my position, I had to be on call (laughs) like once a month. And those on call shifts were always known as just shifts because we were always short staffed. Right. Um, So you're always there. (laughs) Yeah. I know this is still taking you back, but did you have to do, besides shadowing any clinical experience like that, did that even exist where you worked in a hospital setting? So you say scribe as if everyone knows what that is. So most people who are not in medicine. (laughs) So first of all, it's a great, great thing to be a scribe. If you're interested in going into medicine, you don't even realize when you're doing it, how much great exposure you're getting because you get so used to it and you get so used to the patients that are coming in and out and you get so used to the lingo and what the doctors and nurses and all the, the team is, is doing 
but it's a great way to get experience. And again, so many scribes learn so much. And especially if you're with one doctor on a regular basis, they'll oftentimes start to teach you. And so that's, that's an added bonus. And even if they're not directly to see you, yeah, it's (laughs) indirect teaching. So what a scribe is, is someone who is in the room with a patient, typically taking notes and creating a medical record. We did not have electronic medical records back in the day, right? Um, (laughs) even not too long ago. I mean, that whole concept of electronic medical record keeping is relatively new in the scheme of things. So there was no scribing back then. There was certainly shadowing. And even, you know, assisting, we were able to scrub in operating rooms as students, you know, high school, medical school. Oh, wow. If you found the right person. And then also like some research, most of us did some clinical research, whether it was with patients or animals or in a lab. Um, So there were different ways of getting experience. And then looking back on a lot of the classes that we all had to take as pre-meds, it all seemed irrelevant until it all of a sudden becomes relevant. And it's really just building blocks. So you can't understand biochemistry without having organic chemistry. And you can't understand organic chemistry without inorganic chemistry and and so on and so forth. So none of it, you know, do I use the Krebs cycle on a daily basis? Never. But you have to to know that stuff to get to other levels. So it is a very, very, very slow, gradual buildup until you finally get to be doing something remotely relevant to what you eventually want to do and doing something what I do, which is super, super subspecialized pediatric ear, nose, and throat, which is a really, really small area of the body on small people. It takes so long to sort of get to that point because you have to go through all these steps first. You have to go to medical school. Then, you know, your residency is not even necessarily what you want to do with the rest of your life. And then your fellowship is finally where you're training after residency. Yeah. That's finally, oh, this is what I want to do. This is what I spent all these years working towards. And, you know, I think people who go into medicine have to have a very, very strong sense of delayed gratification. Wow. Extremely delayed. Yeah. Extremely delayed. Oh, delayed. <laughs> and, you, you know, and another thing I would say is, you know, you're not going to love every step of the way, but you have to at least like a lot of it. If you hate every single part about working towards getting to your ultimate career goal, and all you want to do is just get there, you're not going to be happy. And there is no really getting there because even once you're there, there's always more to learn. And, you know, we didn't have, you know, for instance, I, we had to learn how to do electronic medical <laughs> keeping, um, <laughs> courses and courses and courses of that. I mean, that's certainly not something that any of us uh, signed up for many years ago. So it's a wow. process and you have to enjoy the process or else it's not going to be worth it. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. That's so interesting. A lot of my family, really none of my family is in medicine and they're just like, so how long until you become a, a fully fledged physician? <laughs> I was like, probably at least 15 years. I want to be a how surgeon. <laughs> they were like, why? Why don't you just go get a job in healthcare consulting and get paid? And I was like, well, the reward seems amazing and yeah, definitely worth it. And right. And those 15 years, I, it's I not can't like- see myself doing anything else. In the 15 years that it takes to so-called get there, mm. it's not like you're going from zero to like everything. There's so much in between where you get more and more responsibility and more and more relevance to what you want to do. It gets a little worse and then it gets a lot better along the whole way. Worse meaning like, you know, you work much harder and with very little 
sort of gratification, you know, sort of when your first year out of medical school, and then every year after that just gets better and better and better. And you don't really think about, oh, you're not doing time. It's, you know, you enjoy it, you know, and again, like every year gets better. So it's not like a penance or anything like that. Yeah. Um, You're not being held against your will. Exactly. (laughs) And, And a lot of people, I will tell you, you know, once you're sort of getting towards that end of your training and education, you kind of want to slow it down because then all of a sudden, you know, you're it and you're responsible and and you don't have as much sort of backup and people, as they get later in their trainings, a lot of people try to prolong the end of that (sighs) because, yeah, because it's fun and they enjoy it and and you have a lot of support without the concern and the worry about being, you know, sort of an independent surgeon. We call it the tile wall effect where you look back for help and it's the tile wall in the operating room. So, you know, don't rush anything. That's for sure. That is so interesting. I'd love to jump into our topic on tackling misinformation. And I want to start off with the question, you know, what inspired you to write Hype? What led to writing that book? It's something that I had thought about over the years, writing a book about medical myths and, you know, just sort of throwing around these ideas. And, you know, I live and work in Los Angeles, which tends to be sort of the on the forefront of extreme medical ideas, healthcare ideas, thoughts about what's really healthy for you. But there was sort of an, an aha moment where I said, okay, this is it. I need to write this book. And, you know, it was a story of this little baby who had choked on a cashew and um, the parents were very afraid of getting an x-ray because they thought the x-ray was going to be too damaging to him. And then they didn't want to get, you know, surgery because the surgery was going to be too damaging. And they actually didn't even want to give him anything but nuts because they wanted him to have protein, but this is a baby. And so he choked and he almost died. So here are these very, very attentive parents who really want the best and, you know, the most healthy lifestyle for their child, unknowingly putting their child at such severe risk trying to prevent other health problems, but at the same time, putting him, you know, again, in a life-threatening situation. And, you know, it was that day that I realized, you know, people really have so much bad information, even when they're trying to do good and do well and do good things for their family, it's oftentimes useless, but occasionally it's dangerous. And so, you know, that's where I thought, like, there's so many dangerous things going on out there, not just for children, but for adults, too, where they're potentially putting themselves in harm's way. So that was sort of the day that that's it. I'm going to write this book. Save some lives. No, seriously. (laughs) I sent this book to a few of my family members. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Oh, definitely. I know in my experience, again, not a lot of my family come from medicine, and so It's not that they don't trust doctors, but they, instead of when they have a problem, they don't go to the doctor they go rely on like self-medication or supplements or the internet, which the internet can help, but you need to go see a doctor who can actually help you with your treatment plan. And, you know, I just think it's quite interesting. This information is so important for people to know and how a society with like social media going on, how do we, especially as like doctors, future doctors really understand how to combat misinformation once we get into the medical field. 
Well, what I find that is helpful, because again, if you just kind of disclaim what anybody says that sounds like quote unquote nonsense to you, that will get the patient out the door and they won't come back. Yeah. So I find it really important, whether it's something that you know is completely nonsense or dangerous to sort of ask them a little bit about it and listen, because Mm -hmm. oftentimes, where is it coming from? Where do they learn about it? Where have they heard that it's worked or not worked? What their concerns are, what their goals are, what their fears are. And then it becomes more of a conversation as opposed to like, well, that's ridiculous. Why would that ever work? I mean, then they're there, you're done, they're gone. And a lot of times, some of this stuff that you hear that initially sounds really silly or dangerous, sometimes there's a little bit of not truth to it, but sometimes there is something to it that you can sort of explain, well, here's what the thought is behind this. And here's why it does or doesn't work. And um, Hmm. have it in a way where it becomes more of a dialogue as opposed to just, well, I'm the doctor and you're the patient and I know and you don't. It's not going to be productive. So I think whether it's speaking in a public forum or writing something or, you know, more commonly when you sort of get out in the world where it's it's one-on-one or you and a family to sort of understand where they're coming from is much more productive. And then you can sort of explain your medical background and education and the physiology. I think a lot of it depends on sort of gauging what the educational level is of the family, what the interest level, what their concerns are, what their fears are again. And then you can move forward from there. I like couldn't agree more. I was a scribe at an emergency department on the Indian reservation out in Gila River. And there was a lot of misconceptions of everything in healthcare with the patients Mm -hmm. we were seeing. But the weird thing was, was that the site was staffed by a travel physician company. And so they would send physicians to us. And sometimes we'd have like our long haulers who had been working there for years and years and years. And sometimes we would get some random person who had never been there a day in his life. And we would go into a patient room. Well, I would go into a patient room with that doctor and I would listen to them as they tried to talk to a patient about what was going on. And I would sit there and I just knew that that patient was not understanding what was going on. And that patient was not going to listen to the follow-up care. They were not paying attention to the advice and that they would be back in two days with the same issue. And it was so frustrating It was so frustrating to sit and watch that happen. Eventually, it got to the point where I would actually speak up and be like, hey, I know you're new here and I respect you and I think you're great, but I don't think the patients are understanding what you're trying to tell them. Because at a certain point, I was like, holy crap, I'm seeing this patient two days later, but with a different provider for no reason. They were just here. This doesn't have to be happening. It's so frustrating. And I know that there's hospitals on sites like this all over the place that are struggling with the same thing. And honestly, that's what has made me want to go into rural medicine even more, just being able to bridge that gap and know like how to just communicate with people in a way that they understand and to meet them at their level so that there's no confusion about their own health. That's perfect. 
Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. Not too similar of a story, but a few years ago, I took this class. It was a part of my research scholars program. And the entire summer, our goal was to take our research, a study that our lab did, a paper that was out or maybe that I had published, and turn it into an article that anybody could read, you know, at the general public reading level. And we had this, I forget what it's called, but like I would write it out and paste it into an online site and it would tell you what reading level it was at. And it was extremely difficult because my research is in molecular biology, um, specifically like looking into a a two component system, which is, oh gosh, I have to go back and (laughs) think about how to convey this to the public reading level. But a system that we found if we somehow got rid of it could kill tuberculosis and conveying that in a way that was impactful. And at the time, the reading level was ninth grade. That was our goal to get. It was really difficult. But when I did it, I shared it with my family members because my family was like, what are you guys doing? What's this tuberculosis research you're like working 20 hours a week at? And I sent that article to them and they were like, oh, I kind of get it now. (laughs) Because for a while they were like, what are you doing in college? (laughs) And then they asked, what's tuberculosis? Yeah. No, yeah. That's, it's so interesting because I'm so used to like presenting at posters and like, that's just something everybody kind of knows is like, oh yeah, tuberculosis is for a long time leading cause of death by a pathogen until COVID came along. Right. But no, and they were like, what's tuberculosis? I was like, oh, it's a bacterium. They're like, bacteria. So antibiotics? (laughs) Right. I mean, I remember when I found out what tuberculosis was because I had just started volunteering at Phoenix Children's Hospital and they were like freaking out about your tuberculosis chest x-rays and your tuberculosis testing. And I was like, what the heck is tuberculosis? And I think I was like 16 And I had no idea. I'd never heard of it before. It's kind of crazy. But I was kind of wondering, Dr. Shapiro, what would you recommend to pre-med students going into medical school? How should we prepare to be able to combat medical myths? Because it's not really something they teach us in college. Like I didn't know how to explain tuberculosis. I didn't know how to explain a lot of things. I just knew the molecular science behind it and how to read you my poster board presentations. (laughs) You know, I think it's a good question. I think that the problem is as you get, you know, sort of further and further along, whether it's bridging from college to medical school and then through medical school and after medical school, you get a narrower and narrower audience. So you're talking to each other all the time. And then when you're presenting your research, you pretty much feel that you know nothing and everyone else in the room knows 10 times more than you do. So you have that sense of intimidation, especially when you're a student, right? You feel like this whole audience of professors knows so much. And so I need to seem really smart and sound like I know what I'm talking about. And (laughs) then it just gets more and more like that. And you have these almost, it's like a secret handshake or a little sort of you get this language that you develop that you don't even realize once you get into medical school and that you're just sort of in your silo of talking to each other. And I think what both of you have said, as far as like speaking with people on a reservation or having to speak to on a ninth grade level about a, you know, a sort of PhD level project 
I think that's something to continue to do as you go on in your education. So talk to your non-medical friends about what you're doing. I mean, it's hard like, oh, you want to know what I did in biochemistry? No. Um, (laughs) But to just sort of share some information that you're learning in a way that you know, your friends in law school might understand, or your friends in, you know, working out in the world might understand, or your family members who are not in medicine. And it sort of not forces, but it forces you to communicate in a way that will be very important when you start communicating with patients, because you're so used to, again, once you get into that whole medical world, all you do is talk to each other. And you forget about having to speak to people who are not in your little bubble. And I think it's something that you can do throughout your whole education. You know, that's a perfect example of sharing this very, you know, specific TB research on a level that somebody with zero background in, you know, even knows what tuberculosis is or what molecular biology is. And, you know, I think that's something to do to just keep in mind as you're going along in your training to just speak to other people. And then if you ever work with kids, I have to do this every day, you know, explain something to a four-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 10-year-old, it's going to be different for each kid. But I always try to find a way that will connect and make sense to kids. So that's another way of communicating on a way that everyone can understand. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. (laughs) No, I'm so glad I have a few friends in non-medicine. I'm like, can I keep them around? (laughs) Can I I tell you about the Krebs cycle and why it's important for you in your body? No. (laughs) I was thinking like with my mom, when she calls and asks me like, how was your day today? I need to start being like, not just, it was fine. I got to like tell her what happened in my day and what I learned. (laughs) So I'll tell you a a quick YouTube story. So there was a guy who was a PhD, finishing his PhD at Cornell at the time. And this was right around when mRNA vaccine was being created. And he wanted to explain it in a way that his mom, who was, I believe, a hairdresser, could understand. And he made this YouTube video for her or a video for her that he ended up, you know, it's gone viral. I'll have to find it for you guys. It's like, boom, this is how you explain it. And it was all the science and written down and in a way that anybody who has zero medical background, zero science background can understand. And there it is. So you can do it for anything. I mean, this is an mRNA vaccine and how it's transmitted and the cycle and the proteins and how it works and how it doesn't work in the rest of your body. Um, It was so detailed, but so simple at the same time. So that's so funny because my mom is a hairstylist and it took me straight back to one of the times when we were out at a restaurant and I had the waitress bring me like the kids coloring menu and crayons so I could draw out for her what I was trying to explain. There you go. That's crazy. Oh yeah. My family would be like, MRI, mRNA vaccines. I don't want that. mRNA is bad for my body. Right. I can't put it in my body. And I'm like, well, that sucks because it's all over. (laughs) It's It's literally everything. Right. But yeah, you know, it's just, I love that so much. I would love to, maybe I'll do that with MPHC, (laughs) make more content like that explaining something like the mRNA vaccine right, in a right. based contact or maybe a podcast content way. That's phenomenal. Wow. Well, I'd love to transition to our activity. Oh my gosh, um, our game. Oh boy. Game. All right. I'm, I'm excited. Myself. This is my favorite part. Okay. 
what we're going to do. (laughs) Here's what we're going to do. So Sarah and I have both prepared true or false questions and I have a few and Sarah has a few. And so I will ask mine and Sarah, we can just go back and forth and switch off. Yeah. Let's say I asked mine and Sarah and Dr. Shapiro have to guess whether it's true or false. And then I have a little explanation too behind it, but I'll go ahead and go first and then we'll switch off. But the first one is true or false. Cracking your knuckles can cause arthritis. False. I think it's false. There's it's like false. so much. Yeah, I was going to say there's so much misinformation about this one. Yeah. Well, it's not proven. According to Harvard Medical School, their website, the popping you hear in your knuckles is caused by like bubbles bursting in the synovial fluid, which is like this fluid in between your joints that pretty much lubricate it so that you can move without screaming. And what they were saying also is that you probably still shouldn't do it because it may decrease grip strength, I guess, or cause problems, but it does not cause arthritis. I remember like <laughs> being in elementary school and my teacher being like, you have to stop popping your knuckles. You're going to give yourself arthritis. That's crazy. No, nope. that's like a common one. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I think mine's funny. A bowl of onions in a room wards off the flu. No, I think it wards (laughs) off a lot of people. (laughs) You won't get the flu because nobody's going to be in the room with you. And then you, (laughs) do you have to wear the onions around your neck? Like in a, like vampires. Exactly. That's garlic. That's garlic actually. Oh yeah. That's garlic. Not onions. Yeah. it's fake. Yes. It's not. Okay. True. I yes. said false, but, <laughs> but in the what? 1500s, before they discovered like what germs were, people thought that the onions would absorb the like air particles that mm-hmm. were causing people to get the plague. Interesting. So they Ooh. put onions out everywhere. It was wow. like a cash crop. Oof. Oh my gosh. Microbiology history is so interesting. <laughs> I love it. I think it's hilarious. Oh my gosh. Okay. Good next one. one. When providing CPR, you don't need to do mouth to mouth. True or false? So that is true and false. I guess for the general okay. public. For I the should general probably, public. Yeah. For, for adults, true. adults, you do not need to give mouth to mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know why? It's because survival rates were actually higher without mouth to mouth because it's uninterrupted, you know, chest compression. Chest compression. Right. And why is that not the case if it's a child? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Right. Oh. Is so, it? I don't know. You can tell me. I think I have so an idea, but I don't know. Just statistically, the majority of adults who need CPR, it's for a cardiac or a heart issue. Right. Right. So most adults who are not breathing and don't have a heartbeat, the origin of that is the heart. In a child, if a child needs CPR, the origin of their needing CPR is breathing, much more likely. So obviously, if you can't give mouth to mouth in a child and you can only do chest compressions, that's great. Do it. But It's also why is the person needing CPR? So adults, it's usually a cardiac event. and children, it's usually a respiratory event. Oh, that's so interesting because I know like in 
public PSAs, especially with everything recently that went down during that football game, it was just like chest compressions, chest Chest compressions, Mm -hmm. you know, chest only, but I didn't even think of children. Yeah. Awesome. They need to be more specific with those. Right. (laughs) Right. Age related. (laughs) Yeah. That is very age related. Jeez. (sighs) Okay. Well, sprinkling white flour on a burn will help it heal. What <laughs> could it be? What about like whole wheat flour or oat flour? Yeah, I was going to say. White flour. Is white flour? <laughs> um, I'm going to say true because maybe because it's like skin. I don't know. Because <laughs> it's powdery. Probably cools it a little bit. It probably, I, I haven't heard that, but I don't think it's going to make it heal faster, but it might make it feel better. You want the answer? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. How did it me? It's fake. Oh, okay. Okay. It's a bummer. It's fake. <laughs> so this was created by someone named David Vinegar. He tried Wait, to vinegar? People- vinegar. <laughs> Not vinegar? Not vinegar. <laughs> but he tried to convince people that it would heal the burns. And so he was like trying to get people to put flour on their burns and like wrap it in gauze and let it heal it. It was completely fake. He totally made it up. Oh, that is so stumped interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But it's kind right. of like toothpaste. Have you ever heard like put toothpaste on your burn? Yeah, no, I've heard of that. doesn't work either. Well, I think it's <laughs> if it's baking soda. I think that's the yeah, idea. Yeah, baking oh. soda. But they don't put baking soda in all the toothpaste anymore. Right. So it no, doesn't work. do not actually. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. All right. This is my third one. So it'll be our final one. True or false? Keeping in a sneeze is bad for you. Like holding in a sneeze. I feel uh, like you would know that. <laughs> I know. I feel like she knows the answer. I'm going to guess. I truly have no idea because I feel like people told me that my eyes would explode if I held in my sneezes, but I think it's false. It's true. Oh, right. Dr. Shapiro, I feel like I should double check with you. Will my eyes really explode? What's the dealio here? <laughs> yeah. So apparently you can build up too much pressure. I was reading on your trachea, but also you can possibly, this is still pretty rare though, rupture your eardrums and like potentially cause earring loss. All these things are pretty unlikely, but it's not great. <laughs> wow. It's not great also because why do you sneeze, right? You're releasing. Yeah. You've got to release all these germs from germs and usually allergens and dust it's sort of like holding in a cough, same idea. Like when you cough, assuming you cover your cough with yeah, your yeah. mouth or whatever, that you're sort of expelling any sort of irritants. But yeah, you can hurt your ears if you try to like hold your nose and, and not let the sneeze out. You can pop your eardrums and theoretically, oh my I gosh. Guess, theoretically, you can rupture your eardrums. Extraordinarily unlikely, but. Uh, it's also like a pet peeve for me. <laughs> I have like a friend who does it. I'm just like, let it out. It seems Let it go. so bad. Just do it. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. That's hilarious. But cover your sneeze or your cough, especially. Yeah. The vampire don't, don't sneeze it out. Yes, exactly. I know. My mom would always like sneeze into her hands. And I'd be like, mom, oh, no. we don't no. do that and anymore. Nice we to meet you. Into, Shake your hands. Sneeze into your elbow. <laughs> Gross. Gross. Well, oh, the, right. the little kids I take care of do not hold back anything. They sneeze, the boogers <laughs> are coming out all over their face and they're coughing all over oh, everybody. Yeah. So no, nothing held back. Not yeah. 
on my world. Oh my gosh. I used to work with two-year-olds and trying to get them to learn that like fat-wing superhero kid. You're just Mm -hmm. constantly trying to like bribe them to Uh cover their mouth. (laughs) It makes you a superhero. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, funny. hilarious. God. Well. Well. Yeah, I think that's all we got. So yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Shapiro, for joining us today on our topic, tackling misinformation. It's been such a pleasure and it's so awesome to have you back after so many years. Just thank you so much for following along everything on the National Pre-Health Conference. Well, thank you guys. It was so great. So great to see you guys and speak with you again after all this time. And uh, it was a lot of fun and keep busting those myths. Always more (laughs) myths to bust, right? Oh my gosh, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So this podcast was produced by Ari Rosenthal and Aditi Kalande and Lorelai Edmonds. You can find our conference on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at National Pre-Health Community or MPHC 2020. You can also find our pod on Instagram at the Pre-Health Pod. Do not forget to register for MPHC 2023 this July 26th to the 28th at www.nationalprehealthconf.org. And please like, leave a review, or tell one friend if you liked our podcast. 